Well, last month, I was uh, humbled and honored to be the keynote speaker at the um, CYF conference, at the Christian Youth Fellowship Conference, held over at Tall Oaks uh, Conference Grounds, about halfway between here, here and Lawrence. I hadn't done that in a long time. I, I, I used to be a youth minister way back in the day, and I did a lot of keynoting at, at conferences like this for high school-age kids. But uh, this was the first time in about 15 years that I was going to do it. I, I don't mind telling you, I was pretty nervous. But I, I, I relaxed a little bit on the opening night session when we heard a great sermon from a, a young girl, a senior in high school named Morgan uh, Larison. Some of you might remember Morgan. Her mom, Elaine Riley, was on our staff for five years as our associate music director, and Morgan was very involved in our children and, and student ministries. Well, Morgan's a leader in our, in our regional youth council here for the Christian churches in Kansas City, and she was then uh, given the honor of giving the opening sermon at the opening worship service uh, there in the outdoor chapel at, at Tall Oaks. It was about 117 degrees that night. The humidity was worse. There was no wind. Now, all these kids, 102 of them, along with about 15 or 20 adults, were jammed into the, the little small outdoor chapel. But Morgan gave this beautiful little sermon where she said, you know, sometimes 80% of life is just having the courage to show up. Just having the courage to show up sometimes is all you got to do in order to get through. I loved what she said. Well, the, the, the kids had asked me to give a, oh, a five or six minute summary of the things I was going to be talking about in my keynotes uh, at the end of that worship service that night. So I, I got up when the music was done and, and said, let me just tell you a little bit about what I'm going to do. And I, I looked at, at, at those kids and I said, you know what, Morgan's right. Just showing up sometimes is the toughest thing we do. Just, just standing up and facing whatever the issue is, whatever the concern might be, sometimes just going to school or sometimes just going home after school. Boy, the place went just totally quiet. I knew we were talking about something. I knew Morgan had set the table perfectly. And then I, I told the kids about, about something I've, I've told you about many, many times before. I told them about this word, awone. I said, it's a Hebrew word that means to be bent over. I said, sometimes it's translated as sin, as in kind of the idea of I'm bent over by my sin. It shows up in the book of Psalms a lot, where the psalmist will write, my sins, my mistakes, they've brought me down. They're holding me back. They're pushing me down. I said, but sometimes that's the wrong interpretation. Sometimes it's just life. Not your sin or your mistake. It's just life. Maybe it's something that uh, some kid at school. I said to the kids, I said, don't raise your hand, but just... Just answer this question silently as, as I ask you. Is there somebody at school who's been picking on you and bullying you and it makes you so angry you just feel like your fists are clenched all day long? I said, is there somebody at home, maybe it's your parent, your mom, your dad, or both of them, who seem to have forgotten that you exist? Maybe there's somebody who's been your friend for a long time, but you got to high school now and all of a sudden she's too cool for you. Again, I could just tell, yeah, yeah, there's, there's some heaviness here. There's some things. Well, as one of the, one of the joys of being there uh, for that whole week to, to give these keynotes was the chance to just hang out with kids and talk to them and find out about their lives and also play a little basketball. There's an outdoor basketball court at, at, at Tall Oaks, and so a lot of the guys got out to play, and I would out, I'd go out and play with them, and I discovered two things. One, I still like to play basketball, and two, I'm old. <laughs> I'm really old. 
Well, there was one, there was one day, though, that we had a pretty good game going, and it got a little competitive, and, you know, guys were just kind of bumping each other and stuff. And there was one kid, though, who was playing angry. Some of you guys and gals who played sports, you know, have you ever seen somebody play angry like that? You know, they just kind of just seemed to come with a chip on their shoulder. There was a kid playing that way, and he got accidentally tripped, and he sort of jumped up like he was ready to have a fight, and he realized it was an accident, and he, he calmed down. It was no big deal. After the game was over, we walked over to the dining hall to get some water, and I, I, I ran up next to him and said, hey, you doing okay? Everything all right? He said, yeah, I, I'm going to be a freshman this year, and I want to try out for the team, and I really want to make the team, and I'm just getting so frustrated, the basketball team, I'm getting so frustrated that I'm not playing better. I, I, I'm okay. I'm fine. All right. It's cool. No problem. The next day in the keynote, I told the kids, I followed up on this idea of carrying something heavy, and I said, I, I want you to know that adults carry things too. This might seem like kind of a silly thing for a 57-year-old man to, to share with you, but it still kind of hurts that my dad never once complimented me on any, any game I ever played. Not once. First time I ever scored 15 points in a basketball game is the highest I'd ever scored. I was so excited. I asked my dad if he'd check the scorebook to see how many points I had. He said, no, I didn't worry with that because you almost lost the game when you threw that pass away at the end. I said, I know it's goofy. I'm, I'm an old guy. I've got a wonderful wife and a couple of great kids, great job. That still kind of stings a little. Well, the keynote was over, and that kid from the day before who was playing angry, he caught up with me at lunch and said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He said, my, my dad's kind of like yours, but it's everything. Sports, school, the way I dress, the way I look. He just constantly, constantly, constantly is on me. Now, if you'd seen this kid, you thought he was All-American. You thought he had everything going. Tall, good-looking, great athlete, obviously bright, intelligent, smart kid. And yet he was carrying something pretty heavy. Pretty heavy. It's Cornel West who wrote, I must unapologetically reveal my broken life as a thing of beauty. Our, our beauty is seen in our collective brokenness, in recognizing that we are taken to a new place, a place of hope. Paul writes to his young friend Timothy, this young pastor, and he implores him with that very simple advice. I hope you heard it in the middle of the reading. Be kind to everyone. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, not resentful. That's really at the heart of the sermon. It's good advice for everyone, not just preachers. But it can be especially true for preachers because sometimes we encounter folks who are dealing with life and other human beings often at their, at their worst. So we have to be kind. All of us do, really, because everyone's carrying, carrying something heavy. Many years ago, many, many years ago, a woman came to see me, a woman in the church. She was distressed. She just found out that her daughter was coming out of the closet, as we used to say, that her daughter was lesbian. She was 22 years old, and she wanted to come and talk to me about that, and how was she going to deal with that. And I, I immediately launched into a lecture about the scientific research and the peer-reviewed journals and all the stuff that's gone on that really demonstrates very clearly that these folks are, are born that way, that people in the gay community uh, are, are not making a choice. It's the way they are since birth, and they've always known that. And I kind of went on and on like that for about seven or eight minutes, and she finally stopped me. She said, would you just, just be quiet? Just stop. 
I believe all of that. I accept all that. I know all that. I'm going to love my daughter, and I'll be proud of her no matter what she does. But right now, I just want to cry. She said, I, I dreamed. I've planned my daughter's wedding. I could see her father walking her down the aisle and handing her off to some young, handsome man. And I just want to cry. I'm going to love her, she said. And she'll find a woman, and they'll make a, a life together but I just want to cry because it's hard to accept change. I wanted to be quarrelsome. She just needed a shoulder to lean on. Paul's advice is so simple. I, I wonder if in this political season of anger and bullying comments, if we could, if we could make a political poster that just says, be kind to everyone. I think I'd vote for that candidate, you know? Be kind. I remember hearing this, this verse brought up in, in Sunday school, the one that, that, that said, flee from the evil desires of youth, or flee from youthful passions. That's the way the reading opened. When I was in Sunday school in the fourth grade and the fifth grade, our Sunday school teachers would use that as a, as a verse to remind us young people that we needed to stay away from evil things like drinking and smoking, and card playing and dancing, yes, in the churches that I grew up in, card playing and dancing were considered sins. And then when it got into high school or junior high and high school, the youth minister uh, that I had was a great guy. I loved him, but he also used this verse, and he would focus on those youthful desires, those youthful passions. In the King James Version, it's translated as lust. Stay away from lust. Not quite sure that how that happens for teenagers, but that's what we were told. And be careful about the way we behave and make good choices and that sort of thing but it's kind of actually missing the point. I mean, I think it's good for 10-year-olds to not drink and smoke. I think that's a good thing. And I think teenagers ought to be careful about their, their emerging sexuality. That's a good thing, too. But that's really not what Paul's writing about. The word doesn't really have a whole lot to do with, with sexuality or, or lust. The word translated desire is the Greek word epithumia, and it's neither negative nor positive. In fact, it's the same word that Luke uses to, uh, puts on Jesus' lips when he's in the, in the upper room with the disciples. Jesus says to his disciples, I strongly desire, I epithumia, to be with you in this moment, to share this Passover, this meal, what we call the Lord's Supper, with you. You see, it's not, it's not about lust or, or sexual sin or something. It's, it's about a strong desire. See, I, the reason I'm bringing this up is because male commentators on the Bible, especially, love to go off on these little tangents of sexuality and, and to talk about sexual sin. I mean, here's an example. How many verses are there in the Bible that deal with same-sex uh, relationships, what we call same-gender relationships? Do you have any idea? Six, maybe seven. How many verses are there in the Bible about money? Give a guess. Some scholars estimate 2,000. <laughs> now, if I preach a series of sermons on sexuality for four weeks, people will go, eh, okay. If I preach a sermon series on money for four weeks, I'm going to get notes, trust me. <laughs> and yet we get so caught up in missing the point. I mean, here's another way of looking at it. John chapter 4 tells a story about Jesus encountering a woman at the well. This woman, Jesus says to her, I know, I know who you are. I know you've had five husbands. I know the man you're living with now is not your husband. Most of the commentators up until just recently used to go on to long tangents about her immoral behavior and her wanton sexuality and all of this, and that is to really miss the point completely. 
because in her day she would have been property. She would have been used easily and abused by men. If, she wanted, if, if a man wanted to divorce her, all he had to do was take out a note, write down that he divorces her, give it to her, send her away. That's most likely what was going on in her life. She thinks Jesus is the Messiah, not because he magically, mysteriously knows that she's had five husbands without having met her before. She thinks she's met God, the Messiah, because he's kind to her. He may have been the first man ever to be kind to her. So when we go off on these, these tangents like this, we, we miss the point. Back to the text, epithumia basically carries the meaning of this. Act like an adult. When you encounter tough situations, don't get caught up in immaturity. If you have to resort to name-calling and insults to win arguments, you aren't qualified to be a pastor. I would add, you're not qualified to be a leader of anything. Look at the next line, which says, pursue faith, then, love and peace. You see, he's not trying to give an antidote to impure behavior. He's pointing Timothy to a way of life that will enrich him and his congregation. He's making it clear that these are the actions of a wise and mature leader. And, and like I say, it's not just preachers. It's anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. You see his logic? Do you see what he's saying? It's like something he wrote to the church in Corinth. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I acted like a child. When I became an adult, I put away childish things and began to act like an adult. Again, pretty good advice. The teaching here in Timothy goes well beyond the sexual ethics to a much deeper understanding of what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus. Well, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, the next verse is the heart of what we're exploring here in this text. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. The word there for kind, for kindness, carries on this idea of a mild and gentle listener, of being willing to listen to not rush in with the explanation, to not explain how things really are, to just simply listen. One of the most difficult things I think that we encounter in the church is the strong desire to fix the other person in the midst of their pain. Most of the times, we don't have the ability to fix that one. They simply need to be heard and received. I've noticed in my own ministry, when I shut up long enough to listen to the other, we are both transformed. There's a book that I just finished reading by Mark Iaconelli called The Gift of Hard Things. Mark, Mark is a pastor and a, and a very good and a, a great writer. He, he has a, a chapter in the book titled Idiots. <laughs> that's the first chapter I read. It got, kind of piqued my interest. And he writes about this experience he had with a group of pastors. And they had all gone out with their spouses. Some of, them were, some of the pastors were men, some were women. They're all out together with their spouses. And they're, they're having a good time, a couple glasses of wine. And they start to share some stories about their own churches and some things they've experienced. And this one guy said, yeah, let me tell you about a couple of idiots that I knew. He talked about a contemplative retreat that he and his wife had attended. Some members of their church went, but some other folks came from other churches to this contemplative, quiet, meditative retreat. He said, for three days, we would begin in the morning with 60 minutes of meditation. The spiritual director would give a word or two, and then we'd be quiet for 10 minutes. And then he would give another word or two, and we'd be quiet for ten minutes. But throughout that quiet prayer, there was this one couple, he said, 
where the woman, she'd stand up and she'd kind of dance around, just kind of flit around. And the, and the, and the husband, he would start to talk to himself. And he'd kind of mumble, and then he'd chuckle. And it was just so distracting. I just, I wanted to stand up and say, this is, the, I'm quoting the guy. I wanted to stand up and say, you idiots, don't you know what silent prayer means? This is silent time. And then Mark says they got into other conversations about other people who had irritated him in their ministries. You can, you can imagine the, the conversation. And then Mark writes, months later, he met the spiritual director from that retreat center. And he said, hey, a friend of mine was at your retreat. Oh, I remember him. Yeah, nice guy. Seemed like he was doing well. And then they talked about different things, their ministries, and as preachers would do, sort of shop talk. And then they got into a conversation about suffering. And the spiritual director said to Mark, let me illustrate what I'm talking about, how we can help others who are suffering. He said, at that retreat that your friend attended, we did a quiet meditation every morning. Mark said, yeah, I heard about that. And the man said, without knowing the story that Mark had heard, said, there was a couple there. They were from the Midwest. Their son had died two years before. They were experiencing tremendous grief. They didn't know how to deal with the loss of their boy. And so they came to the retreat to find help. He said, I noticed on the second day of the quiet meditative prayer that the man was kind of mumbling and talking to himself, and then he would chuckle and laugh in the middle of the silent prayer. And so I talked to him after one session. I said, I noticed that you're chuckling during the prayers. May I ask why? He said the father turned and faced him, and he had tears streaming down his face. He said, in the silence, I imagine my son, and I remember the things that we used to talk about the things that used to make him laugh. And it makes me laugh. And it makes me think he's okay now. Do, do you see how simple and clear it is? When we can listen to the other, when we can recognize that the other, that everyone you know, everyone is carrying something. Is that an excuse for bad behavior, for stepping on your toes, for calling name? No, no, no. But everyone. Everyone is carrying something. A philosopher once said, the love of neighbor in all its fullness simply means being able to say, what are you going through? 700 years before Jesus came to preach and teach and give his life, the prophet Micah, in a time of great political unrest in Israel, a time when the rich were getting richer and the poor were being stepped on by the rich so they could get more and more in their bank accounts, when someone asked the great prophet, what does the Lord require of us? He said, what does the Lord require? Justice. Mercy. Kindness. Jesus with a woman at the well, a woman who'd been abused by men her entire life, treats her like a human being. And in that kind moment, she thinks she's encountered the Messiah. The Apostle Paul writing to a young pastor, a young pastor who was no doubt pulled by a variety of different things, his own ego, his church, his membership in the congregation, all the rest. In your ministry, be kind. Sisters and brothers, it's that simple. Be kind to one another. That is the essence of the good news we preach. It's that simple. 
and it's that hard.